This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm Rolf Strabar, filling in for Will Brem. For the next three shows, I'll be interviewing the winners of the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group's inaugural annual book award. The award is intended to highlight the most interesting and influential current scholarship in our growing subfield. In today's show, I speak with Irv Epstein, the first of two honorable mentions in the Book Award competition. Irv is a professor of peace and social justice at Illinois Wesleyan University, where he directs its Center for Human Rights and Social Justice and chairs the Department of Educational Studies. Irv Epstein, welcome to Fresh Ed. How did you become interested in this subject in terms of youth protest and social media, and what really brought you to this? Well, I have had a a uh, long-lasting interest in uh, social movements and in youth protest. Uh, uh, You know, I'm a child of the 60s and early 70s, and uh, as an undergraduate, I wrote a senior thesis on the May 1968 student demonstrations. And after a number of years, I thought it would be useful to... uh, go back and and look again at that kind of literature and what had changed. And certainly I was captivated by the uh, global protests that occurred from 2011 to 2013 in particular. Uh, So in and in doing that, of course, the uh, use of social media was a uh, a, a new phenomenon that had to be taken account of. So this was a chance to reprise uh, long-lasting interests and to uh, update uh, my understanding of uh, the literature, which had changed quite a bit in, in, in it's, since my uh, initial explorations of the topic. Yeah, that gets into another question I was going to have, which is, especially in the introduction, you framed this very much in relation to the protests of the late 60s, and it sounds like, so that was an early research interest for you in your career. Yes. And uh, why do you feel that's a productive comparison between, say, the, the movements of then and now? Well, um, I think uh, the questions uh, arise as to the importance of protest, of social movement protest, and how you measure that importance. And I think for a number of us who were involved in youth protests uh, growing up, uh, we wrestle with that kind of question or those issues all the time. Um, There is a tendency, on the one hand, to be uh, self-congratulatory. On the other hand, we look at the world uh, years later and uh, the lack of progress, uh, given the idealism that was expressed at the time, and um, look uh, back with some remorse and regret. Uh, so on a personal basis, these are issues that are always going to be with us. Um, and uh, But what I noticed is that the same kinds of questions that uh, – arose in the 60s seem arise uh, when looking at uh, more contemporary protests as to whether or not they were effective, whether or not, uh, you know, they uh, touched upon a wide group of interests or a narrow group of interests, 
whether uh, the possibilities for uh, engaging in uh, politi uh, lasting political and social change, how one, in fact, decides whether uh, a protest movement is successful. Uh, and so I, I think that those comparisons are quite important and useful. And then there are the differences that are really important. And uh, the major difference uh, is that in the 60s, uh, although there were global protests, certainly in 1968, uh, they were framed within the context of the nation state. And whereas we were aware of what was happening in other countries and other uh, other places and locations, the fluidity and the ease with which uh, one could be aware of what was happening in other places it was somewhat restricted. And then the possibility of ideas influencing directly mass behavior were somewhat limited. And I'll give an example of that. I've been thinking about this. And... Um, both in the 60s and uh, more recently, there were a number of performative rituals and acts that uh, youth participated in, um, uh, which showed their idealism, perhaps some naivete, and a way of challenging the system, but in a non-confrontational way. So uh, one of the incidents in the 60s, which was quite famous, was uh, protest leader Jerry Rubin went to the New York Stock Exchange and uh, went to the top of the, the top floor and then uh, threw out dollar bills on the floor of the exchange. And so all of the traders stopped what they were doing, gathered the dollar bills, and he basically stopped the stock exchange from operating. Right? So that was a kind of performative act which was inventive, and it was a, a way of really mocking uh, what he saw was a capitalist system. Well, if you can, you can imagine what would happen if such an act occurred uh, in contemporary terms and was broadcast through YouTube or was, uh, you know, with a global audience. Mm -hmm. uh, it would go viral. Uh, there, the audience would be expanded exponentially. Um, and, and, and the context... And the meaning of that, what that meant would be discussed amongst uh, multiple groups in ways that could not happen in the mm -hmm. 60s. So I, that's how I see the similarities and some of the differences between looking at protests uh, in the 60s and in uh, the 21st century. And, and specifically in the book and even in the title, you focus and to sort of a certain degree on on new media and social media's role in that. Do you also feel that the role of the traditional media has changed in response to that, like into how we respond to protest events? Well, that's a great question. I think it has. Um, one of the points which is made in a number of chapters is that the social media has substituted for traditional media, particularly in authoritarian uh, uh, situations where regimes are more able to control uh, old media. And so uh, whether it be in the Russian case or uh, in the Chinese case or in the um, uh, uh, Bahrainian case or other cases, uh, you find social media being used as a way of uh, c 
conducting watchdog journalism and netizenship, uh, forming new senses, uh, new senses to what it means to be a citizen, because traditional forms of expression and reaction to communication uh, of ideas through old media are just not available. So in some ways, in some contexts, uh, the social media has replaced uh, traditional media, and in other situations it's supplemented it, uh, but it's not replaced it. So it sort of depends on the context. Um, and you're already jumping into a bit, I think, some of the particular contributions of particular chapters. Could you explore a bit or just explain for the listeners how the contributors to this volume came together? Yes, it, it was a... Uh, so basically what happened was that I um, uh, wrote uh, one of the chapters uh, uh, after uh, giving a uh, presentation at the uh, World Congress of Comparative Education Societies in Buenos Aires. And that was a chapter that compared uh, basically youth protests in Chile uh, Spain and uh, looked a little bit at the Occupy movement in the United States. Um, I met colleagues at the World Congress who, uh, and we talked about expanding this idea into an edited volume. And, and then I also had a number of colleagues uh, whom I knew were uh, area studies experts with general interests in the field whom I contacted. And then there were others whose work I had read, uh, who I contacted, and um, many of them, uh, some of them were available, some of them recommended other scholars. And so uh, it, it's, it's just a combination of people uh, who had uh, uh, similar interests uh, and were available to participate. And just because a lot of our listeners might be more junior scholars, people that are still in grad school. Could you explain a bit of the process of how you went about securing a contract for the book, at what point that happened in the process, and uh, whether you got a bunch of contributors before putting it out to various presses, just because that can tend to be a black box for people that haven't gone through that process before. It, it, and it's a, yes, that's a great question. So um, I uh, contacted uh, people uh, before securing a contract. Uh, and as part of the process of uh, oh, creating a uh, proposal, um, one uh, gives a chapter-by-chapter -chapter outline. Uh, one includes a sample chapter. Uh, and one uh, also includes the affiliations of the various contributors. Now, there were uh, some contributors who were, you know, uh, wondering, well, has, has a contract been secured? Uh, am I going to devote time to this without there being a contract that's been secured? And, uh, you know, I, you know, so it's a, it can be a chicken and egg situation, but uh, generally uh, the commitments are there. Uh, and then with, uh, depending upon the, the publisher, um, you know, you uh, send this out. And in this case, uh, I really wanted uh, 
to uh, go with the University of Pittsburgh Studies in Comparative Education series uh, because there were university reviewers that would look at the um, uh, proposal. And then uh, what, that came through, and then we uh, had about a year or so to get everything together. So uh, 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 that's basically how that, that happened. Thanks. That's, that's interesting and insightful. Um, I'd love to get a bit more into your contribution as an editor. Specifically, in your introduction, you go to great lengths to discuss how, unfortunately, often globalization and neoliberalism can often be conflated, like we talk about them as if globalization only happens within the framework of neoliberalism. And you go on to differentiate and define both terms to frame the book. Um, can you explain a bit of that here and how you differentiate between those terms and why you feel that's important? Sure. Um, so I see uh, neoliberalism as being an important uh, part of uh globalization, but it is uh, a more limited uh, part. So when I, when I think of, when we think of globalization, um, the kinds of characteristics I refer to uh, include uh, differential, differentiating notions of time, uh, whereas flux becomes more significant than necessarily linearity. Um, where knowledge production is explosive and instantaneous as opposed to canonical, um, where uh, ethnicity is trans transnational rather than fixed. Um, and within all of those processes, there are certainly uh, many neoliberal agendas. And by neoliberalism, I think we're referring specifically to Oh, uh, a, a systems which, uh, on the one hand, um, promote risk generated through financial investment rather than through traditional forms of economic production, uh, promotion of the structural adjustment policies where the market economy is promoted but with state interference. Uh, and the artificial inducement of competition on unequal terms. So those things are part of uh, globalization, but they're not the only parts of globalization. So I would say, you, uh, first of all, neoliberal agendas occurred prior to uh, an understanding of globalization processes. They were uh, most evident with Thatcherism in the 70s uh, and occurred in new, uh, you know, in uh, with uh, <coughs> uh, government uh, in the United States with the bailout of New York City and the draconian terms under which New York City was bailed out in the 70s. Um, but uh, globalization also involves uh, newer forms uh, of um, I guess, uh, of uh, empire building and neocolonialism, uh, certainly after the Iraq war. And, uh, and so the, that has to be part of the equation also. Um, and all of that is, is part of a, you know, a globalization, uh, what we would consider to be globalization. But if we narrow our terms of discussion 
to simply uh, neoliberalism, I think something is lost. And what is lost is the fact that globalization challenges uh, traditional notions of institutionalism and modernity. And with regard to schooling and schooling processes, particularly uh, globalization asks us in looking at the ways in which ideas flow and change to think of education uh, as being a more fluid concept, not limited to state-sponsored schools or the relationship of the state to education per se. So it's actually asking us to expand our understanding of what education is and means uh, and therefore I find it useful to make that distinction. And we see that explored in a couple of the chapters where there isn't necessarily a discussion of uh, formal schooling per se but are uh, but of education in a broader sense. Right. Right. Uh, just to give anyone who's only hearing about the book for the first time here a taste, could you give just a few examples of perhaps what what are what aspects of this broader trend are addressed in some of the various chapters? Uh, sure. So, uh, what the uh, chapters do is that they look at uh, both social movements and forms of youth protest in a number of different contexts. Uh, so there is a chapter that looks at the uh, Gezi Park demonstrations in Turkey uh, as an example of uh, protest uh, directly against the neoliberal state. This was uh, a space, Gezi Park, which was uh, a public space uh, which was going to be uh, used by developers with the assistance of the state for a building of a shopping center. Uh, and that symbolic intrusion into the public space uh, created a widespread dissent, uh, really with regard to the authoritarian nature of the state. Uh, and so that chapter really looks at... Um, uh, that social movement uh, within the context of the way in which an attack on neoliberalism is framed and against a, uh, uh, through uh, opposition to an authoritarian regime. Uh, similarly, there are chapters that look at uh, Iran and look at Bahrain with regard to the use of the social media, as I said before, is spaces for contesting uh, the regime's authoritarianism, um, many of which are not immediately successful, but at least in the context of Iran, uh, the uh, results of the Green Revolution years later result in a uh, uh, voting out of power of uh, uh, hardline conservatives. Um, in both of those cases, you see uh, the government's, uh, uh, let's say, uh, being caught off guard with regard to the use of social media, and then they come back and then create their own alternatives to try to repress it. Uh, there is a chapter on the Pussy Riot Band controversy in Russia, and there again, the Internet is the social space for argumentation and discussion of ideas which would not be allowed publicly in formal spaces. 
And then there is the chapter that I referred to before that looks at uh, uh, Chilean student demonstrations as well uh, in uh, uh, with regard to uh, uh, education inequality and financing uh, as an exemplar of the corrupt neoliberal state. Uh, where students use the traditional mechanisms of organization uh, to uh, rally uh, widespread support against the government, uh, compared with the Spanish case, the uh, Indignados movement, which was more, uh, uh, I would say, uh, grassroots, uh, a little bit uh, more anarchic in terms of lack of formal leadership uh, and uh, very social media driven. And then the Occupy movement in the United States is used as a kind of comparison between the two where uh, there are uh, characteristics of both of those examples that are in play. And uh, there are other chapters too. The one I want to mention, uh, which I think is important, is uh, the South, a chapter on South Africa and uh, um, uh, Shack Dwellers movement in South Africa, and there the argument which is made is that the digital divide is so great that people who are really poor, who have had uh, the uh, experience of organizing, don't use the social media, they don't have access to it, and so uh, the possibility of social media being used for widespread, uh, uh, let's say, demonstration uh, uh, in a positive way does not occur uh, in the South African case. So I think from those examples, and there are others too, but I think from those examples you can see that uh, uh, I hope that the book does a fair job in looking at both the limits and possibilities of organizing in the 21st century uh, and takes um, hopefully a, a relatively objective view with regard to uh, the importance of, of what's happened uh, recently on a global scale. Yeah, following up on that, one thing that uh, we discussed a bit within the award committee, just because it's become such a such a topic of discussion, especially following the Arab Spring and Occupy and the traditional media, is that among some social movement theorists, there can be a, a worry that the importance of social media can be overhyped to a certain degree. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. There are, you know, there are contrasting views. Um, the argument which I found most compelling is the argument in favor of the importance of social media is that uh, generated by sociologist Manuel Castells, who, in looking at the Arab Spring as well as Spain, uh, sees uh, that there are differences in social organization and in ways in which people relate to one another as a result of mimicking the networking function of social media, the lack of authoritarianism or leadership uh, or uh, discrete leaders, for instance, the lack of political uh, organizations such as formal uh, student unions or student groups directing from top down uh, courses of action. Uh, and Castells argues, in addition, that it's through the social media that people see that their friends are going to go 
demonstrate. So the act of demonstrating and physically going out and participating uh, in a demonstration doesn't become so onerous. There are people who are going to, in fact, uh, uh, be with you and that that. And, and you realize also, of course, that there's a larger audience that is going to witness and see what, in fact, you do. All that it has a positive effect. The other argument is that social media creates cleavages so that who you contact on or who your Facebook friends are, who you're, you're blogging with and looking at are basically people of the same group that you uh, identify with. And so... There is a notion of identity salience, the way in which you see your own role as an active member of a social movement broadening or changing. And, and there is dispute as to whether social media, in fact, encourages uh, broader participation or limits it. And I think um, the in terms of the cases for this book, it's mixed. Um, uh, you don't see, uh, you know, the social media necessarily dramatically changing uh, uh, permanently social relationships. But on the other hand, you see that it has an effect. So in the case of Cambodia, for example, where the uh, Traditional media are severely controlled by the government. 200,000 people come out for an opposition leader's rally, which could not have happened except because of the use of social media. So um, uh, I think that, you know, the jury is out, uh, like all sorts of uh, items and things. Social media uh, is an important tool, um, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that it has, let's say, permanently changed the ways in which people organize the way they get together uh, in ter- uh, and the nature of their, their social relationships. But that might be a gradual thing that's happening through time. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us. For any listeners that uh, want to check out the volume, it again is... The Whole World is Texting, Youth Protest in the Information Age, edited by Irving Epstein. It's been out from Sense Publishers through the series it's a part of. It's Pittsburgh Studies in Comparative and International Education, a series edited by John Weidman and W. James Jacob from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Irv, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Irv Epstein is a professor of peace and social justice at Illinois Wesleyan University. His latest book is entitled The Whole World is Texting, Youth Protest in the Information Age. Next week, I continue the focus on book award winners by speaking with Howard Prosser, one of the co-editors of In the Realm of the Senses, Social Aesthetics and the Sensory Dynamics of Privilege, which won the second honorable mention in the Globalization and Education SIGS Book Award competition this year. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to the Fresh Ed podcast on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG. 
which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Rolf Strawbar, and I'll see you next week.